Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities podcast. Since its beginning in 1992, Kentucky Chautauqua has brought to life more than 70 people from Kentucky's past, both famous and unknown. Our Chautauqua performers travel to schools and community organizations throughout the state, delivering historically accurate dramatizations of Kentuckians who made valuable contributions throughout their lifetime. Of course, during the pandemic, most Live in-person performances have been canceled, uh, but we are hopeful in 2021 to return to those live performances. We've got our fingers crossed. There are several Chautauqua performers who are ready to appear virtually to your group, church, or community gathering. All you have to do is contact them directly or contact the Kentucky Humanities Office and take a look at those, and we'll... um, almost guarantee that they'll be uh, available to you virtually uh, throughout uh, uh, 2021. One of our newest Chautauqua performers is Michael Jones, who portrays Colonel Charles Young. We'll find out more about Colonel Young in just a minute, but first, a little about Michael Jones. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And let's hear a little bit about you. Uh, You are relatively new to the Chautauqua performance arena, uh, having uh, only been approved. Uh, Thank goodness. What a great performance and uh, what a a great character that so many more people need to know about. But as far as going out on the road and traveling the state of Kentucky and telling the story of Colonel Young, uh, you haven't had an opportunity to do that yet. But um, we'll talk about him, as I said, uh, in a moment. What about you? What What do you do? What What's your day job? Well, um, I work for the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet, and I am a Historic Preservation Program Administrator, which uh, roughly means that uh, we 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 um, run projects that are federally funded through the cabinet, and these are typically not big highway you know, mega uh, freeway projects. Uh, the office that I work in typically deals with smaller projects and tap money, transportation alternative planning. Uh, and a lot of the projects we do are trails, sidewalks, uh, but we also do historic preservation as one of the eligible categories. And so my job as a historic preservation um, person is to look at the projects and make sure that we're not going to do anything harmful to historic properties that are nearby uh, that we may be actually working on it. As, like I said, we do historic preservation. So sometimes we give money to historic properties. And so we review the plans to make sure they're following the federal guidelines uh, in doing the work or building nearby something. Give us, uh, if you would, one or two examples of some of the projects uh, that uh, might apply uh, or might be eligible uh, for uh, the the funding or the work that you do. Yes, yeah, so so uh, we've we've provided funding for portions of the Legacy Trail here in Lexington, uh, um, uh, at least two or three sections of that. We've done work on historic properties in uh, Paris, uh, the Duncan Tavern, um, uh, just multiple properties around the state. 
Do you also handle the, um, you, you said historic preservation, but what about the the uh, anthropological or archaeology part of uh, what is involved? That is a, that is a dual component. So um, my, my portion uh, deals from historic background uh, and it's part of the, the, what we call Section 106 review, uh, which is part of the National Historic Preservation Act. Uh, but there's also another component that I kind of, I guess, uh, combined with when I work with the Transportation Cabinet's Division of Environmental Analysis. Then we look at some of the other things, um, not just archaeological, but biological. You know, sometimes we're going through wooded areas and we have to look for plants, uh, endangered species, uh, again, archaeology. Uh, but that work I do in conjunction with the uh, Transportation Cabinet and also the Kentucky Heritage Council. They're my partners um, to, to generate what we call the environmental clearance for these types of projects. How long does it, um, or, or is that hard to pinpoint, uh, how long does it take uh, for a project to, from conception to, to final, uh, to be approved? Is that, 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 that can take some time, I guess. It, 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 it varies. Uh, uh, you know, I, I had to get used to the idea of something not being done in a few months. Um, these projects can take years. They, they don't normally, uh, but there's still at least a one, you know, a general guarantee of at least one, maybe two years that it's going to take to start from start to completion. Uh, that's from being, uh, you know, the application process, the award, the awarding process, uh, hiring consultants, uh, setting the plans, getting them reviewed by all parties. It's not just me, you know, the cabinet itself reviews the plans, uh, the districts work on the plans, um, bidding it out. You know, that's at least a month right there of just bidding, um, uh, pre-construction meetings, and then you actually get to the work of the project. Uh, and all the while, there's paperwork, administrative detail uh, that has to be followed to the T because it's federal money. Uh, and so, but, you know, that's, if we're lucky, we get it done in a year, maybe two years. Um, I, I've spent years on some projects. Could you give me, um, just from your memory something that uh, a project that you've been involved in and, and what has been discovered or found that no one knew might've been there. Is there a good example of what you, what you have discovered yes. or something that, that you had to call in experts uh, to, to take a look at? I can, I can vividly recall it's the, the most memorable, uh, but not the only one, uh, Bargetown. Uh, we were redoing, uh, they got, grant we had already given money to work on their, their square the courthouse and they got a grant to redo the 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 roadway and, and the sidewalks around their courthouse square so um, during the excavation they discovered uh, they uncovered a water well with a with a with a, like a limestone cap cap on it deep under the road and so we went back and did a little research and found pictures of the well can't remember the exact dates, but at that point, it was a dirt road around the courthouse. So it tells you it was old. Um, and unfortunately, they cracked the capstone when they were digging. No one knew it was there. But uh, at that point, we had to stop work, called in uh, two archaeologists uh, to come down and take a look. And it was intact. I think it had limestone walls, uh, pristine condition. Um, and we discussed, you know, cause, is this something that we could leave exposed some way? For people to see historically, you know, this was here. There's a beautiful picture of of a uh, of the whale. Um, 
and it's in this original condition uh, from a distance. And I think there may have been a man or a horse standing nearby at the time. But uh, the decision, I, actually, two archaeologists came down and, and I was there with them. I actually we went down together and I said, which one of you guys is going in there? <laughs> and they just kind of looked at us and said, no, we're not going in. But you know, probably the best thing, if we can't, we talked about putting a glass top over it, leaving it exposed, but we couldn't. It just wasn't safe uh, and, and probably not good for the well itself. So we ended up putting the capstone back on, covering it up and then just and just leaving it in place. Did you. Um have any idea about the the, the date or the, uh, the the period that this was uh, yeah. originally constructed? I could give you the exact date. I'd have to look, but I would say it was late 1800s, uh, maybe the early 1900s, somewhere around that period. I can't remember exactly because it was it's been about I don't know six or seven years ago when we did this project. But uh, it was very exciting to, to uncover something like that. Michael, do you think people in Kentucky um, are aware enough of historical preservation and the importance of what uh, many people might have in their own backyard or on a big city, Louisville, Lexington street uh, corner where something might be discovered in, in road construction. Are, are people sensitive to the importance of historical preservation? I, I think uh, as a state, uh, Kentucky is a, a probably ahead of, a lot of other places in that there, there is a significant amount of historical evidence left here. Uh, and it's everywhere. Like you said, it's under the streets. It's in the, it's in the fields. Um, it's in your backyards. And, you know, I can remember going around looking at uh, tombstones in people's backyards when I was younger, looking for civil war soldiers and they're out there uh, and, and the families were aware and they, they knew enough to leave them alone, you know, and, and they felt that they were important enough to not bother. So uh, I think, there's a lot more work to be done, though, because you're always dealing with the, the needs of progress in space. Uh, and how do you balance, you know, you know, advancing the state and the economy and protecting these these important historic um, properties at the same time? I'm talking to Michael Jones, who is one of our new uh, Chautauqua performers for Kentucky Humanities. Uh, Michael portrays uh, Colonel Charles Young. We'll hear um Colonel Young's story from Michael in just a few minutes. Michael, how did you first uh, become interested? If there's somebody listening to our podcast today and and uh, they think, and we we do get requests uh, or at least inquiries about this uh, quite often during the year about a particular historical figure or a character that either is known or maybe not known at all to a, a certain uh, group or to even uh, Kentucky Humanities, um, how does one become um, interested enough to to put together a performance like you have uh, for for Colonel Young? How did you first hear about uh, Chautauqua? Well, I, I'm trying to go back because um, my interest um, started. I think I look back. I tried to find some emails to see when I started actually thinking about doing the Chautauqua program. Uh, it might have been 2012, 2013. Uh, but I knew uh, one or two people that had done it or I'd met people that had done performances. Um, and, and actually, I will tell you, I'm a Civil War uh, reenactor. And uh, a few years ago, one of the guys that in the group that, that we we portray, he was a, a Chautauqua character. So I got a real good in-depth kind of understanding of what it was, how things work, what he did, how it, how often he did it. Um, 
And I'd always joked with him, yeah, I want to do something one of these days. Uh, but I had already thought about Charles Young going back um, to 2004, 2005, because um, I, work, I worked as a curator for the Kentucky Historical Society. That's where I began my state government career. And uh, the first exhibit, major exhibit that I was allowed to uh, curate was on African-Americans in the military. And so I, I ran a gamut uh, from, you know, the early days of American history up through Desert Storm, actually, and try to cover as much of that experience from a Kentucky perspective as possible. So Charles Young was one of the characters um, that I fo- that I focused on for that exhibit. He had a section in the exhibit. So that kind of was a starting point once I under- understood as much as I could about him and knew how important the story was. And, there- and I knew who he was. And I think a lot of people know who he is, but there's a lot more to his story than people probably know. What kind of um, evidence or a repository of, um, of biographical material did you find on Colonel Young? So there are multiple books. Lots of books have been written about him uh, over the years. Um, Wilberforce University, um, there's an institution there uh, that has his personal collection of material. Um, one of them, I think there's more than one collection of, of things that, that belong to him. But I, I, I went up there and I sat and looked through letters, pictures. I read books, uh, you know, the Internet. I mean, it's just there's a there's a there's a vast there's a there's a large about a, a bit of information about him. So it, it's just a matter of reading, uh, taking it in, trying to understand it, put it all together. Uh, but it really uh, helped that. Uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago. I met uh, one of the authors of one of the books. Where, where did you meet uh, this the, the author? At Camp Nelson. We were doing a Civil War uh, program, and he had come to visit. And actually, had moved to Louisville, and he was uh, the author of a two-volume book on Young. So it was like uh, you know one of those meant-to-be moments. I heard his name, and I said, and I had his book. Well, I, I had his book with me because I was reading the book at the time, you know, just keeping it on my mind, trying to trying to, to learn as much as I could and understand Young. And they called him, called his name. And, and I said, oh, I've got to go talk to him. And uh, I did and told him what I was thinking about. And he said, well, if you need any help. I'm happy to to uh, to assist. And so I worked with him very closely to to make sure that I had a lot of factual information correct. And went from there. But that was like a it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, this was it's time for me to go because I've been thinking about it for years um, and, and wasn't getting any younger. Uh, <laughs> and, and so it helped tremendously. His name was Brian Shello. Brian Shello. Is he still living? Yes, he lives in Louisville. And that's the other thing. He had just moved to Kentucky. It was an aha moment meant to be. It was. It, it was. It just kind of it, it, I had already been getting a lot of uh, support and people encouraging me. But that was one of those. Oh, wow. You know, you got a source here that that most Chautauqua, Chautauqua characters won't have. Tell me um, about Colonel Young. Give us a, a, a brief uh, sketch, uh, a, a biography of, um, of of who he was and, and why his life is significant. Well, of course, we'll start. He was born March 12th, 1864, uh, up near Helena, Kentucky, or Maeslick, kind of close to both in Mason County. Um, of course, the Civil War was going on at that point. His father joined. 
um, served till the end of the war, came back, decided they wanted to move to Ohio uh, to a fresh start. Um, so he grew up in a place called Ripley. Um, typical, you know, uh, um, went to a segregated school, but because of his, uh, he did well in school, he was able to take classes at the white school that weren't offered at the colored school. I say colored, but um, I'm, I'm in that, I'm in character mode now for some reason. Uh, uh, did very well, you know, began teaching not long after he graduated high school. Um, saw a flyer about West Point and he thought about it. You know, he saw that his dad had been in the military and he saw this was an opportunity for him and, 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 and took a shot. He got into West Point. You said uh, that he saw a flyer about West Point. Yeah, advertising entrance uh, dates uh, for the exam to get into West Point. So, and his father had been in the military and he thought he would yes. follow in his father's footsteps. Uh, continue. Yes, yes, exactly. And he did. He went to West Point. You know, like again, a lot of people know the story of him being there. As, as, as he wasn't the only African-American cadet. And that's one of the things I think sometimes people don't get that part of the story. Um, there was another man ahead of him, John Hanks Alexander, who would become the second African-American to graduate West Point. Um, so he was, there was another person there, although again, they were in different classes and they were probably separated, but it's very likely that they were also kept together. You know, he wouldn't have had a white roommate. And if these were the only two African-Americans there, they were likely together. But there's, and that's one of the things you have to kind of speculate because there's no definitive document that says they were roomed together. But it would make sense. So but he struggled uh, not only with being the only person of color there uh, and, and the majority of the other cadets isolating him uh, and not wanting to deal with him, not wanting to talk to him because of his color. Uh, he had some trouble with mathematics. Um, had to repeat his first year, um, um, had other cadets of color come in and fall out. You know, so at different times, there were other colored cadets there. Um, but he made it through, um, got to the end, and he almost, you know, he almost didn't make it then. He uh, struggled in another civil engineering class. And um, But I think, again, and I talk about this in my program, that I think that after having watched him for five years, they gave him a chance. They gave him two months to study and retake the exam. He did. He passed. He graduated, became an officer in the Army. And he began his career serving out west with the Buffalo Soldiers. And there's a lot of detail about, you know, the, the, the ups and downs of even just getting out there because being now two officers of color in the United in the entire United States Army. Uh, and the Army always had this dilemma of what to do with him because they didn't want him commanding white troops. So being with the Buffalo soldiers, he was relatively safe, but that was only at the beginning. He, once he began to advance in rank, he could have junior officers under him. And so there were only so many slots for officers. So white officers began to show up underneath him and that was a problem. And he had to deal with it always. They complained, they didn't want to do it. You know, they wrote letters to the, to the war department saying, why did you put me here? Some, you know, so he had to deal with that as well as being watched by everyone for any, 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 any mistakes. You know, he had to be, you know, as sharp as, as ever at all times because he was always being watched. Uh, and for a while, he was the only officer because John Hanks Alexander died not long after he'd been out West. Um, but he struggled. He persevered. Uh, he, he maintained, he advanced. He, he was promoted. 
Uh, he went to teach and start a, a military science program at Wilberforce University. Um, not long after that, he was called up to go serve in the Spanish-American War, but he never got there. The war ended too quickly. Um, he went to the Philippines. Uh, and again, he advanced in rank, um, got married, had two children. Um, he started, um, he became one of, the, he became the first African-American to serve as a military attache, uh, first in Haiti, uh, uh, where he just, you know, he, he, he commented on, you know, how much he had, uh, he studied Haiti. He knew about the, the revolution where they had thrown off slavery and, 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 and pushed the French out. Uh, he knew about, uh, and I'll make, make sure I try to pronounce his name right, General Toussaint Louverture, the, the, the Haitian who started the revolution. And, and, I, and I'll make a reference to this, that he joked. He wasn't joking, but he had told one of his sergeants years before that, that he was going to be a black general, just like Toussaint. Um, and so he had that in the back of his mind. And, you know, at that point in his career, things were moving. He, he, he still had his problems, but he was advancing. He was probably a, uh, a captain at that point. Uh, saw opportunities that maybe he would be able to make a general. So he continued to push and deal with, with whatever came. He advanced. He goes, becomes an attache to Liberia. Um, he's in Africa now, uh, trying to help that country, which had strong connections to America because it was founded by former slaves from America. Um, and there's a there's a Kentucky connection there that I, I kind of forgotten about, but somebody reminded me uh, a lot of those early settlers to Liberia were from Kentucky. Oh, sure they were, and they were they were at one point during the. Um uh, before the war, um, Henry Clay and Abraham Lincoln, both, uh, although there were periods of time in, in their service uh, to America, they were both in favor of sending uh, African-Americans back to uh, Liberia. Um, and uh, there, there's uh, certainly evidence of, of clear evidence that uh, there, there was a, a colony of, uh, of Americans, in, in, including a number of Kentuckians. Yes. Yes. So he, he was there. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to work on putting that into the story a little bit more because I'm sure he probably went to some of those specific places uh, just because of that. Uh, you know, then the World War One breaks out uh, and then there's this dilemma that he has. Uh, he had brought his wife and children to Liberia, but he sent his children to Europe for education. They were in Belgium. And this this ties into the, you know, the problem that he has. Uh, at the beginning of the story is he knows he can't go to Europe to fight in World War One. He's been told that. So this is just prior to all of that where he needed to go get his children and he couldn't go. He had to send his wife. And she went and she found them and they went to Paris where they were still in danger, but they, they rode out the war there. And so he gets back to the States. Um, he participates in the, the punitive expedition into Mexico to go after Pancho Villa. Uh, there's a there's a, a good account of one of the battles that he fought in down there. Um, he had his health issues. You know, he had already had these nagging health health issues, and it came from a life of service in the army. You know, going to uh, tropical climates like the Philippines, you, you get these different little illnesses. Um, but as long as he was serving, he was able to stay functional. And so. Um, of course, at that point, we, it kind of brings it. it this, the story goes full circle. I start out where he's, he's he's been told he's not going to Europe. And I bring you kind of through his life up into that point again. And now he's sitting here, you know, figuring out what what do I do? Do I 
Do I publicly protest the army for not allowing me to go when I know that I should be and the whole country knows that I should be going? Uh, do I wait on the army to make a decision? Um, do I do something else? You know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was going to form a volunteer unit to go fight in the war in Europe. And he had asked Young to go with him. Um, so there's this backdrop of this dilemma of what, you know, I've served my career. I've done everything that's been asked of me. I've been dedicated, loyal. I've persevered. And here I am at a point where I'm being held back. And so he could he could have jumped off the rails and said, you know what? I am. I'm going to protest. But that was not his way. So he didn't publicly fight you know, and speak out against the army. Uh, he had people working on his behalf trying to get him to go. But it never worked out. Uh, and his last effort was he did that horse ride from Zinni, Ohio to Washington, D.C. To, uh, Washington, D.C. to prove his physical fitness. Uh, but by then it was too late. The war was already over. But they reinstated him, uh, which was kind of a slap in the face. Uh, but again, he was a soldier and he, he had made it clear that he was going to do his duty, whatever the army decided. And so um, he served for a few more years and actually sent him back to Liberia. But by then his health was in such bad shape that that was almost you know, I mean, it was it was a guarantee that something was going to go wrong. And he, he took ill and uh, he passed away in Africa. Why was he sent back to Liberia? Was that just a, another uh, part of his as service? A, as a military attache. Yeah. And he was he actually took he got ill. He was in another country doing reconnaissance in Africa um, um, and he never recovered. He went kind of went downhill. He like I said, he had high blood pressure. He had kidney disorders. And once those things kind of compounded and hit him, it was just nothing they could do. Uh, how many years of service did he have in, in the U.S. military? Over 30. Over 30. Uh-huh. Over 30 years. And when did he, uh, am I correct, in, in, uh, he became the first uh, African-American superintendent of a national park? When, when did that occur? That's, and what? That's correct. That would have been 1903, 1904. Um, he had just gotten back from his tour of duty in the Philippines and they were stationed in, uh, in California in the Presidio, I think is the name of the fort. Um, and while there, uh, he was, he and members of the ninth cavalry were detailed to escort president Teddy Roosevelt in a parade. And so uh, I make the comment that, you know, maybe from meeting the president, uh, they made an impression on him because not long after that, he received orders to go to the Sequoia national forest and serve as the, superintendent for that season. Was he still in, in the military service uh, as superintendent? At that point, the military, the military, that was a task that was assigned to the military. So a different officer would come in every season and run the park. Fascinating. The, the, the entire story. Um, Michael, when we uh, come back from our, um, our break and uh, I'd like for you too, if you could uh, have a selection of your, a performance uh, of Colonel Young. We'll hear from you uh, as uh, Colonel Young right after this uh, valuable word from our friends at Spalding University. The Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing offers students intellectual rigor, emotional support, affordability, flexibility, and community at the world's first certified compassionate university. From certificate to terminal degree, the programs at Spalding School of Writing foster lifelong writing habits and help you forge a lasting writing community. Learn more at spalding.edu slash schoolofwriting or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, here is Chautauqua performer Michael Jones as Colonel Charles Young. I was born a slave, March 12th, 1864, right up in Helena, Kentucky, near Mays Lick in Mason County. Now, America was at war with itself over the very issue of slavery at this time. My father, Gabriel, had had enough of slavery. He joined the Union Army, and after his service, he moved my mother, Armenta, and he took me to Ohio, eventually settling in Ripley. Now, to support us, my father farmed, and he worked with horses, and he was good at that. I helped him often, and I came to love horses. You know, I am a cavalry man. My mother, Armenta, she had been educated while a slave by her mother, and she taught me much at home before I ever started school. And like any other child, I ran and played when I could, when I wasn't helping my father. However, when I went to school, white children went separate from us. But I did well in school, and I was allowed to take some subjects only available at the white school. I really enjoyed languages and music. You know, I got my start in music earlier when my father caught me dancing on the corner, singing to earn some money just for candy. And he decided that if I was going to perform, I was going to do it correctly. And he enrolled me in piano lessons. I became good enough to play in church. And I even now play whenever time allows, and I've written some music as well. I graduated high school with honors in 1881, and I was teaching at the color school not long after that. Within two years, I was acting superintendent, and I could have had a long career as an educator. It runs in my family. But it was in 1883 that I and some other people in my community saw a flyer advertising dates for the entrance examination to West Point. I knew about West Point. I'd seen articles in some of the colored newspapers about colored men going to West Point. I knew that since 1870, over 20 colored men had been nominated to West Point, but only a few had gotten in. And so far, only one had graduated. Henry O. Flipper. You all know what happened to him. Education was important to me and it was expensive, but West Point was free if you committed to serve. I saw what the military had done for my father and he was excited I could see the look of pride in his eyes about the prospect of his son attending West Point. My mother, however, she saw only danger for a son in the military and did her best to discourage me. But I prayed about it and I decided I would try. When I arrived at the examination test point, there were two other colored men there and over 20 white men. Now, several of us got perfect scores. I got a perfect score on the written examination. And at the end of the day, I was number two overall. But West Point wasn't looking for number two. So I went back to Ripley to continue teaching while the first place candidate set off for West Point. Now, not long after that, and for reasons I don't know, the man who finished ahead of me resigned. I was notified by Congressman Alfonso Hart that he was going to nominate me to fill the spot and told me to get to West Point immediately. It was the summer of 1884. Now, getting nominated is not a guarantee to get into West Point. When I got to West Point, there were over 100 white men and two other colored men. We were immediately set upon by doctors, uh, teachers. We were tested in reading, writing, spelling. I was required to stand in front of a crowd, just like I'm standing in front of you now, and answer question after question after question. Doctors poked and prodded us for any physical defects that would keep us from serving. When the examinations were done, there were only 69 of us left. The two other colored men had failed, but we all took the oath 
to serve for a term of eight years. On June 15, 1884, I had made it into West Point. All right, Michael. Thank you so much. That was uh, terrific. Uh, that was uh, Michael Jones, who is uh, one of our Chautauqua performers, uh, uh, portraying uh, Colonel Charles Young, um, who uh, is distinguished as a Kentuckian, born uh, and spent some of his years there before he joined uh, West Point and became um, one of uh, certainly an accomplished career, uh, being the first African-American superintendent of a national park, first uh, African-American military attache, and the highest ranking African-American regular army officer at the time of his death. Uh, Michael told us uh, before the break uh, that that occurred in Liberia in in Africa. Michael, did I'm going just to uh, generally assume that he suffered uh, great uh, racism and and fought that battle uh, throughout his entire life, including the time that he was at West Point and the time that he served in the regular army. It was a a real uh, task for him to to weather that uh, race storm that was uh, uh, put upon him by so many. Yeah, that was the that was the. uh in addition to being a, sol- a soldier for the United States and fighting th- those battles as a soldier, that was the other battle that he had to fight from the, the day he stepped uh, onto the campus of West Point till the day he died. Um, it was an ongoing, constant battle. There are specific things I talk about in the program uh, as well. At West Point, he was silenced. That, that's the term they used, uh, which could happen to any cadet of any color, uh, but you had to do something. A white cadet would have had to do something. Conduct unbecoming of a gentleman is, I think, what they described it. And you could be punished by what they call being cut or silenced, uh, meaning the other cadets would not talk to you, would not speak to you, would not socialize with you outside the duties required on the campus. Well, any colored man who entered West Point was cut immediately. And their only conduct was being a man of color. So he spent those four years, five years, uh, being shunned by the majority of the other cadets. Now, what I have to come to learn and understand is that there were a few white cadets who didn't care and made friends and socialized with them when they could. Uh, but it was a very small circle. But those were friends that he cherished throughout his career. And he would often write letters to them. And a lot of, a lot of the things that I saw were letters that he had written to them and they had written to him over the course of their careers in the Army. Knowing him so well, as you do, uh, really... Uh understanding his his thought process and and the work effort that he put in throughout this what 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 do you attribute what do you think he would think about to during those times of um of oppression uh that really carried him through what was it about his was it his parents was it his growing up was it his just uh what what instilled in him to be a, a great person i think you you probably hit the nail on the head i think he had two excellent role models in his parents. And I think they instilled in him a sense of, of, of uh, duty, you know, find out what it is you want to do in life uh, and stick to it. Don't let anything stop you. Uh, he And I try to, you know, you try to understand a person. If you're going to do this type of thing, you try to figure out what their inner being was like, their inner character. You know, I, I envision him as a, a, a kind of stoic person because I think he had to grin, not grin, but he had to bear a lot of unnecessary uh, uh, hatred. And it was probably often directly, you know, in his face. And, you know, a lot of people would not be able to handle that. 
But I think he he just he had the nature to do that, knowing that he had a purpose. He, he had set his mission to advance as far as he could in the army, uh, knowing that he was he was laying a path for people that were going to come behind him. And I think that's what kept him going. Um, he knew that he was going to be the first in a lot of places, first in the ranks, in the positions, uh, and that he was going to be judged and that the judgment that he got would be put upon the people that came behind him. So he knew he had to do it right. And so he did, you know, and that meant that he suffered and he took a lot of stuff that he could have not taken it, but it would have cost him. It would have cost him. Um, and so, but he set the trail and he wasn't alone. Like I said, there was, there was John Hanks Alexander who had graduated second and Henry O. Flipper, the first, but he, he made, he extended the trail. Uh, all the way through his career. And so he set it up for those young African-American officers that came, that came up behind him. That's uh, Michael Jones, who portrays uh, Colonel Charles Young for the Kentucky Humanities uh, Chautauqua series. Uh, because of uh, the pandemic, uh, we're not uh, traveling with our program as much as we want to. And uh, we hope that uh, soon in uh, 2021, uh, Michael will be able to join your church or group or organization and and learn more about uh, the character that he plays, Colonel Charles Young. Uh, Michael, thanks for uh, joining us today. Appreciate it. And we're very proud to have you and Colonel Young as members of Kentucky Chautauqua. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking with you today, and I'm looking forward to getting out and telling and showing the story. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.